Uh, just another quick announcement as we're getting ready uh, here to do our study of the Word. Um, we showed a video last week, if you were with us, in honor of our fathers. For Father's Day, we had uh, collected some uh, answers from the children of our church in relation to their fathers, uh, and we made a video in honor of the fathers. We showed it last week, but uh, I've been asked a few times now uh, for those fathers that were here, not here, maybe missed the video if they could see it um, for a small fee. <laughs> Just kidding. It would, we, I, I checked with you. I think we still have it on the computer. So what we'll do is at the end of the service and we do our dismissal song. If you uh, missed that video, if you remain in here, we're going to double check. It might still be up there. And while we have everything connected, we'll put it on for you. Does that sound good? Um, everyone else go out and eat all the cake and, and everything, and then they miss out on that for missing last week. You see, that's how that... I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But we will try to find it. If it's not there, um, then we'll probably need to see if we can find out where it is. And if, um, if it's okay with parents, we'll have to get permission, consent. We can actually attach it to our, our, our website, um, and you can access, access it that way. But we'll have to make sure all the parents of the children in the video... Uh, have given us consent about that. But, but we'll first try it today, see if that works. Okay, John chapter 2. John chapter 2, if you'd like to turn in your Bibles there. We'll continue in our study of the Gospel of John. The author John uh, thus far has introduced to us the eternal pre-existent word, uh, the eternal word as the light that is the life of men. And he's introduced that word, to us as having been manifested in the flesh as the man Jesus. He is now, in chapter 2, going to begin to provide the evidence of such a bold claim. To go and say someone existed before time began, and that person is the light that all uh, light that brings all life to all men, uh, is Jesus, is a pretty bold claim. Thus far, We have merely met Jesus briefly, and he has collected a few disciples, five at this point. But John is going to begin to present to us the evidence for the claim, and he's going to present it to us in the life and ministry of Jesus, primarily through seven signs. If you're familiar with the Gospel of John at all, you know that John has particularly chosen seven miracles of Jesus. He's done a lot more than that. We know that he's, he's done so many miracles and so many things. He said so many things that uh, all the books of the world could not contain, right, the things that Jesus did if we were to write them all down, John tells us. But John picks seven signs, seven signs to present to us this Jesus. And here in chapter 2, he's going to begin with the first sign. Here's what's interesting about that. These seven signs will only take us from chapter 2 to chapter 11 of this 21-chapter gospel. Chapter 2 to chapter 11. After 11, with the exception of the resurrection of Jesus, we don't have the signs to present uh, the Messiah to us, the Son of God, the light that brings life. We just have the seven signs. They take us up to chapter 11. And I want to show you why real quick. If you turn to chapter 11 of the Gospel of John, I'm going to give you a quick preview of what is to come. A quick preview. Now, this doesn't spoil anything for you because John has already told us that things would go this way. But in John chapter 11, Jesus completes the final miracle, at least um, the one that John uses here, of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. 
And in beginning in verse 45, you see the response of the religious leaders here. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do? For this man works with many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. We live in a world full of lost, rebellious, fallen, sinful people. The presentation of the word, the light that brings life to men, is supposed to bring belief. Belief. And here we see that that has been the case. Seven miracles are presented to the Jews, and many believed. But the leaders, the chief priests, the Pharisees, this council that they come together to form to try to figure out what do we do about him? If we, if we continue to let him do these signs, oh boy, everyone will believe in him. And then what will happen? Well, then there will be an uprising. There'll be an uprising by the Jews. And if there's an uprising, the Romans will quench that and they'll take away our leadership. They'll take away our place. They'll take away our position. And so... The result of the decision of the council, if you skip down to verse 53, is this. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. What I want you to note here as we begin to study is that belief was there. Belief was there. The chief priests believed. They said, if this continues on, we're done for. What held them back was themselves. I lose something that I am not willing to give up if I believe. I lose my place. I lose my position. I like what I have. I like who I am. I like what I want. And I don't want to change. They knew Jesus was who he said he was. The people believed he was who he said he was. But they said that can't happen because then I lose something. People have a hard time with the Bible, not because of the historical Jesus, but they have a hard time with the Bible because of the miraculous Jesus. They'll tell you the minute you enter into the miraculous, it discredits the Bible. But I would just start with Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created. If you can't get past that, you're going to have a problem with the whole Bible because it starts with that. It starts knowing that the God, the creator, who brought all life into existence, who, all, who brought all things to be, who brings all the laws of the universe into play, the laws that we are governed by, can, when he wants and how he wants, alter those laws. He's created them. It's not a far leap for our minds. He's the author of everything. He's the author of life. Yet, because... If we want to believe that, we might lose something. We choose not to believe it. There is a famous museum you have all seen in movies and in pictures, no doubt, um, called the, um, and I just lost it, Griffith Observatory. There it is, in Hollywood. The Griffith Observatory is on the hills of the Hollywood, Hollywood Hills, near the Hollywood sign. If you've ever seen movies, and it's got this dome-shaped uh, uh, thing to it. 
And then when you walk into the observatory, there's this long hallway that takes you into sort of the planetarium room where they kind of have the telescopes and all the displays and things of the different planets. And as you're walking down the hallway along this long wall, um, and it was done sort of an artistic way so you could appreciate the art as well as the story, are all these metal gears and things like this that come into an explosion. And all these gears and cogs are falling and tumbling as you walk through the hallway, and they're kind of meshing together. And as you go, they kind of make this little river-like thing. And as you get to the end, oh, planets. And so you are meant to, when you enter the building and arrive into the planetarium, go, there, I have been sufficiently informed. (laughs) Clearly, all that I see has come about by that. That, that is it. That's the presentation. Kaboom, and then, and, and look at that. And we're supposed to go, wow, yeah, that's totally how that happened. Can I just, honestly, can I just, can I just put the cards on the table and say, do we really believe that? Are, are humans really that deft? Are we that dumb to go, we're, we're not. We're not stupid people. We choose not to believe. I will take that ridiculous nonsense over in the beginning, God created. Because if God created, then I have a creator and I have a responsibility to him. We have an incredible miracle here in chapter two. Jesus is being presented to us as one who can alter laws because he is the creator of them. And so this is not a hard thing for me. This is not a hard thing for me to swallow. I don't read this and go, ah, gosh, I don't know about that. I mean, after all, yes, Because you have to start in in chapter 1 of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's God. And so he can do whatever he wants here. You will see that that is partly the case in terms of what he wants because he's also operating under the timeline of his Heavenly Father. But what is sad about this, and I know I've already kind of mentioned this, we already see what happens in chapter 11. They're going to plot to kill him. No more signs will be given to us because from chapters 12 on, he's spending time with his disciples and he's on the road to the cross. That's where he's going. And John told us this would happen in John chapter 1 in his prologue because he said he was sent to his own and his own what? Did not receive him. They didn't receive him. They chose not to believe. So let's look at the very first few words here, and I'm just going to begin to set this up. It says this on the third day in verse one of chapter two. On the third day is where this narrative begins. And this refers us back to the previous narrative we've gone through in chapter one of Jesus calling his first disciples, specifically Philip and Nathaniel. It's the last in a series of of time indicators. If you recall, when you go back to chapter one, beginning in verse 19, beginning with sort of the um, interrogation, if you will, of John the Baptist by the Jewish authorities and coming to chapter 2 with the wedding in Cana, this spans Jesus' first week of ministry. You have day one there that John is questioned by the Jewish authorities. And then in verse 29, it says the next day, and the next day he sees Jesus coming. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then in verse 35, it says, the next day, the next day John did what? He again says, behold, the Lamb of God, and two of his disciples follow him, and they spend the day with Jesus, spend the night with Jesus, finding out that he indeed is the Messiah. 
They are Andrew and John and their brothers. And in verse 43, it says the following day. And on the following day, Jesus wants to go to Galilee, which is where he's going to end up here in chapter 2. And he finds Philip, and then Philip goes and gets his friend Nathaniel. Obviously, because he wanted to go to Galilee, we find out why here, because he's got a wedding to attend in Cana. And Cana was a town near Nazareth in Galilee. And I mentioned that last week because Nathaniel kind of makes a derogatory comment about Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, that's because he's from Cana. He's from the rival town, and so he sort of makes a, a dig into the town of Nazareth. But here's what's interesting. Where Jesus is currently located in the proximity of the Jordan River, it would take him three days, him and his disciples, to travel to Cana. So we have four days and then three more days, and we end up with his first week. So the third day refers to the third day of traveling from the vicinity of the Jordan to here in Cana. Why do I begin with all that? Well, because I want to show you something. Now, the area where he is at is in closer proximity to, I would choose, a, be- a better place, a more uh, prominent location for his first miracle. If you were going to come out and say, okay, I'm the Messiah, I'm the one you've been waiting for, think of, think of all of Israel, where would you go, where would you choose to perform your first miracle? Jerusalem, Jerusalem the capital, right? Maybe even the, the temple itself. And Jesus is near that, yet he travels three days the other direction. He goes to Galilee, to Cana, and it's there that he performs his first miracle. Now, as also as we've been going through John, in terms of chronology of Jesus's life, we know already that John doesn't address the early life of ministry and ministry of, of Jesus in terms of his birth, right? His younger days. We don't have the description of him, you know, being lost in Jerusalem and, and being found in the temple when he's a young boy. It, it starts with his ministry, essentially. And so far, chronologically, you have not missed anything in terms of his ministry except one thing. And it's an important thing, and I want to point it out to you. One thing has happened before we reach this miracle. One thing has happened before we reach the point of chapter 1 where he's called his disciples. In fact, I think it's even happened before John points at him and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What is that one thing? Temptation of Jesus. The temptation of Jesus is not recorded here. And I bring it up to you because one significant thing happens there, and I want to just show it to you real quick in Luke chapter 4. All three Gospels here have it, but Luke chapter 4, I just want to bring it to your attention. You guys remember this? This is after the baptism of Jesus, because in verse 1 of chapter 4, it says, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, where he was baptized, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing, and afterward, when they had ended, he was, he was hungry. So it tells us here the temptations by the devil. I want to take you specifically to verse 9. Look what it does. This is the devil bringing Jesus somewhere specific. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus is actually taken to Jerusalem. Not just Jerusalem, but the pinnacle of Jerusalem. The highest point would have been probably this retaining wall that would have been on the southeast corner 
that would rise well above the Temple Mount, but also it's on the Kidron Valley. So if you were to stand on that pinnacle and drop, you were looking about a 450-foot drop. And that's according to Josephus, the Jewish historian. He would say that, that's a pretty big drop. Now, we know Jesus refuses that because this is Satan trying to twist Scripture to use it to justify Jesus tempting God. You shall not tempt God. But let me just ask you, if you were going to you know, perform a miracle, if you wanted to display yourself as the Son of God, could you imagine in Jerusalem, the bustling capital of Israel, would that go unnoticed? Launch yourself from the pinnacle and then see a bunch of angels swoop in and catch him. That would be the point. But Jesus has already chosen not to do that. He turned away from that opportunity. Jesus has another opportunity here, being in the close proximity of Jerusalem, and leaves it yet again and goes to Cana. Why? Why does he choose obscurity rather than fame? Why does he choose to serve and not be served? Why does he perform his first miracle in a little backwater town called Cana? We're going to answer those questions today. So let's look at the passage, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. I'll read the whole thing. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. God, we come to your word today wanting to see you anew, wanting to see you afresh. Lord, we have belief. Help our unbelief. God, we want to see you clearly. Would you just manifest yourself today? Would your spirit guide us into truth, Lord, that we might better know you and better walk with you? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I'm just going to break this down real simple. First, we're going to look at the scene. The scene. When we look at this first verse, verse 1, we find out that Jesus has family at the wedding. It's his own mother. Did you notice that? His own mother is here at the wedding. Now, interestingly, just a side note, really, John, the author, never mentions Jesus' mother, Mary, uh, by name. He'll just say the mother of, of Jesus. And we'll see her mentioned again, obviously, in this, in this passage, but also in, in chapter 6, verse 42. And then again, uh, when Jesus is on the cross in chapter 19. And all those times, he's just going to uh, identify her as the mother of uh, Jesus. Um, could be a similar reason as to why John doesn't reveal his, his own name. 
Um, but in any case, she's not mentioned, but we know that she is uh, there. And it says that um, Jesus was uh, going there, and in verse 2, uh, not just him, but he went with his disciples because they were invited to the wedding. Now, the disciples would, that would have been going with him were the five we, we met last week, right? The five I, I, I mentioned. So you have Andrew and Simon, Peter, you have Philip and Nathaniel, and then the unnamed disciple, John. So here's the five that are going with Jesus. And the fact that uh, Jesus' mother is present at this wedding, um, and not just present, but she's, she appears to have some sort of uh, responsibility at the wedding because she's, she's helping uh, the groom's family there. Uh, and the fact that Jesus and his, his disciples are invited suggests that the wedding involved some kind of relatives maybe or, or friends that were close to uh, the family. Now, I'm not going to assume everyone understands what a, a first century Palestinian wedding would look like. But it's quite different than our weddings today. The, the wedding uh, betrothal, quite different. We'll talk about that later. But the wedding ceremony itself would last up to a week because it, accompanied with, uh, it was accompanied with a feast. It was a major social event. And it was paid for by the groom's family. Now, now think about this. It's a week-long feast paid for by the groom's family. Now, I have three sons, and I am particularly grateful that this tradition has changed. I got one daughter. <laughs> but that could be a quite an expensive endeavor, couldn't it? Um, the wedding itself was a culmination then of this betrothal uh, period of time. And during that period of time, which could last several months, I guess it's similar to our engagements, except the difference is that they're considered legally married. But they haven't had the actual ceremony um, and, and certainly the marriage hasn't been consummated at that point. But if you look at Matthew chapter 1, just to uh, show you, in Matthew chapter, chapter 1, we're told here in verses uh, 18 and 19 about the birth of Jesus, but also the relationship between Joseph and Mary at that time. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph... Before they came together, she was found with the child of, child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, and notice this, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. So notice, they're betrothed. They have not come together, but they are husband and wife. And the only thing that could terminate this betrothal was a divorce, was separation. <clears throat> On the night of the, the, the ceremony, what the, the groom would do, he would go to the bride's home, he'd gather the bride and her family, and they would go to the, the, uh, the, the house of the groom, and that's where the wedding ceremony uh, and the banquet would take, uh, take place. So that's kind of what you're looking at when you look at this uh, the wedding feast. Now, this could be uh, that this is a uh, less well-off family, and it's a one-day feast. I don't think it always was a week long, or we're coming at a particular point here. But here is the point, verse 3 something terrible happens. It says this, and when they ran out of wine, <laughs> when they ran out of wine, it's just thrown out there, but see, wine was a staple drink, right? Back in uh, first century Palestine, it was uh, due to the lack of, obviously, refrigeration, right? The fruit would ferment, and the result was a nice alcoholic beverage um, with the capability of causing drunkenness. Now, a word about that, just briefly, the Bible does not forbid drinking wine. In some cases, it it recommends it. However, 
it does strongly condemn drunkenness. Uh, so, to help avoid the risk of drunkenness, of which wine was capable of doing, it was often diluted. Often diluted with water to one-third to one-tenth of its strength. So they could uh, drink a lot more of that and remain unaffected. Also, remember this. The groom's family is paying for the entire ceremony, which includes all the food, and which includes all the wine. Um, and now they have run out of it. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. This is an embarrassing faux pas, which could have haunted the groom and his family for years to come. Oh, you remember that wedding? And they ran out of wine, those losers, right? You don't run out of wine. Now, when Jody and I got married, we didn't want to get married in our hometown of Lancaster. We chose to get married 220 miles away on a beach called, of all places, Cambria. That was the name of the beach. That's why we named our daughter Cambria, because we love that place on a little landing overlooking the ocean called Leffingwell Landing. And when we chose that place, we did all the research necessary. We went to the Chamber of Commerce multiple times. We're going to do a wedding. We'd like to pick this date. What do we do? Do we need any licenses? Do we need, what do we, what do we do? No, lots of people get married there. Just show up, right? And you're, you're good to go. Just get there early because sometimes, you know, especially in the summer, which when we got married, you know, other people will be there, but usually they get along. No problem. Great. So we're inviting all of our friends and family to come to our wedding 220 miles away from our home. Now, what I appreciate about the people that were helping to kind of run the wedding is that nobody came uh, to, our, to our rooms to bother us, well, particularly my, my wife's, although this news did reach me as I'm preparing to go to the ceremony. I'm getting on, you know, nice, everything, like, you know, I'm looking in the mirror, I'm like, yeah, this is, she's getting a good deal here. And I am... Um, She's not in here. Don't tell her I said that. I, I got the better end of the deal, clearly. You guys know that. But, um, but um, Saul, which was uh, Jody's cousin, great, great man, came in and said, hey, there's been, there's been a little hiccup. Hey, it's just not what you want to hear, you know, on the wedding day. A little, okay, a little hit. What's the hiccup? Was it, well, a sheriff has shown up. And he said that you need, <laughs> you need permission to do a wedding there. And we said, well, we, we have come here for months. We've gone to the Chamber of Commerce. We got permission. He's like, yeah, but you need some kind of permit or something. No, no, we don't. We were told we don't need a permit. He goes, well, in addition, there's another group having a wedding there, and they have a permit. <laughs> like, oh, no, like, what are you going to do? You're in trouble here now. So he very calmly, he said, don't worry about it. I've handled it. I said, what? what? I mean, we all going to do it in the parking lot? Like, what are we gonna do? Everyone, come into my room. We're going to get wet right here because this is happening. He just told the sheriff, he said, listen, they did the research. No one told them that. A hundred plus people are on their way right now to a wedding that has to happen. He's like, are you going to be the one to tell them there's no wedding? Sheriff thought about that and said, hmm, yeah, probably not. All right, go ahead and have the wedding, you know, and just, you know, talk to the people there and make sure they're okay with sharing with you. But could you imagine? We walked out there. We found out there's another wedding party, and we couldn't hold it. That would be the faux pas of the century. Oh, remember we were invited to the wedding, Kevin birthday? Oh, yeah. We couldn't even come. <laughs> had to marry Kevin in his bathtub in his hotel room. I mean, it's awful. So glad we avoided that one. But, you know, just kind of get into that mindset that this is something tragic for the family. This could be embarrassing. They've run out of wine. And so the mother of Jesus goes to him, right? His, her son. Which is interesting. Again, this suggests that Mary was somehow overseeing maybe some of the catering or something. But why does she go to Jesus? Well, firstly, you notice someone is missing. Where's Joseph? 
where's her husband? Why does she go to Jesus and not Joseph? Well, Joseph isn't mentioned here. It is possible that he is already dead. We do know that he's dead when we get to chapter 19. He is not there. She is husbandless. She's a widow at that point. So it could be that at this point, he is already uh, dead. But if that's the case, Mary has learned to depend on her firstborn son. And Jesus has learned to take care of his mother. Um, And so it makes sense that she would go to him to handle this potential embarrassment. The second thing is, what does she expect Jesus to do here? What is she really asking Jesus? Lots of people think different things. Is she really asking for a miracle? Or has she never seen anything? Is she completely oblivious and said, just on a practical level, you know, could you do something about this? Well, I want you to consider Mary, and I want you to consider what she knows about her son. <laughs> Certainly, she knows about the miraculous virgin birth. Let's just start there. But what about the words of the angel Gabriel? Look at Luke chapter 1, verses 31 to 33. This is what Gabriel told her about her son. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. That sounds like a pretty great son coming along your way, right? How about the words of Simeon? Do you remember when they went to the temple to, for the circumcision of Jesus? There's this, there's this man that's been waiting to see Jesus. It's Luke chapter 2, verses 29 to 32. I have it for you. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared before the face of all the peoples, a light <laughs> to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. A light to the Gentiles. The glory of Israel, that's her son. You can go back before that and and think about what the shepherds, what happened to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, verses 16 to 19. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in the manger. Now, when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. And here's the key. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. She remembered, she's a mother. She remembered these things about Jesus. So it may be that Mary was politely suggesting to Jesus that this might be the prime opportunity to display, right, his messiahship, his glory. Because after all, here's a real need, right? This family is about to be embarrassed. Could you do something about the wine? And then look at Jesus' response in verse 4. Jesus said to her, woman! (laughs) Now, just kidding. Don't add that voice inflection. Uh, That is not, that we read that, right? And that's kind of what we hear. But that is not what was intended. It certainly does do this. It does certainly signal a change between the relationship between Jesus. Because he didn't say mother or mom. It's a polite term. This is a polite term. It's similar to the English word ma'am here. Um, It's not intimate, but it is polite. Jesus is not being rude to his mother. Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? The phrase here is a common expression in the Greek, and this is really important. 
It really means this, what to me and to you. That's literally how it is. What to me and to you, woman? What to me and to you? And what it meant is referred to a difference in relations and a difference in realms. Where we see this used, and this is fascinating, is when Jesus converses with demons. The same phrase is being used. I'm going to show it to you here in Mark chapter 1, verses 23 to 24. There was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, a demon. And he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. There's the phrase, what have we to do with you? Literally, what to us and to you, Jesus? Same phrase being used. What does your realm have to do with ours? What do we have in common? We see it again in Mark chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. When he saw Jesus from afar, this is the man who had cut himself and they had to chain him up. He ran and worshiped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? Again, what to me and to you, Jesus? So it's just asking this question. What is shared that is common between these parties? That's what Jesus is saying. The thrust of that comment is, what do we have in common? What is still in common? Um, While I was growing up in Nazareth, right? You You were mother to me and I was son, but this is no more. Woman, man. Something has changed. Jesus has begun his public ministry. And now he is subordinating all activities, all of them, to the fulfillment of his mission, which which was committed to the will of the Father. I mentioned that earlier. The timing of his manifestation was in the Father's hands, and that is seen more clearly in the next statement that he makes. Look what he says. My hour has not yet come. My hour is not yet come come. Jesus is going to refer to this, this hour or this time um, throughout the gospel here. And I want to show you because this is, this is very significant in helping us understand what Jesus is doing. You will see him use this phrase in several other instances. And I want to take you there. Just flip to uh, jo- uh, chapter 7 of John. Just flip ahead a little bit, a little sneak peek at chapter 7. And look at verses 2 through 8. There's a legitimate request being made of him here to present himself. Um, And look at his response. Look at this. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. And then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I'm not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. Time hasn't come. In fact, if you go further into that chapter, uh, look at verse 30. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Flip to chapter 8. Look at verse 20. Again, 
These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. Jesus' hour had not yet come. But then, when had the hour come? When you flip to chapter 12, keep going up to chapter 12, look at verse 23. All of a sudden, we see the hour is here. The hour has finally come. Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. So here we have several instances of the hour is not yet. The hour is not yet. Here's an opportunity to reveal yourself. No, the hour is not yet. My time has not come. We come to chapter 12. My hour has come. Why chapter 12? What I tell you at the beginning? Because chapters 1 through 11 are the signs. After that, rejection. And once rejection comes, his hour has come because his hour refers to his death. The hour that Jesus is going towards is full rejection, betrayal, crucifixion, eventually resurrection and glorification. Amen to that. But here was the arrival of the hour. And as you read from here on out, you see the hour is here. Just look a little further down in verse 27, if you're still in chapter 12. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. That's why I am here. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Even as far as chapter 17, in verse 1. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you. It's not the appointed time for him to reveal his full messianic glory. And this miracle would make his divine power unmistakable. His hour was referring to his death, and it is not time for that. It also does something. It reveals that Jesus had knowledge that his miracles that he was going to perform, they weren't going to keep him from the cross. He knew that, right? He knew it. His hour was the cross. Jesus knew unbelief would come and the cross would come. Incredible. So his hour has not yet come. We're at a dilemma. We have a family we love. They've run out of wine. This could be a potential embarrassment. Jesus, could you do something? We're in two different realms now. I'm, I'm moving on to the cross. My hour hasn't come. I've got to go here. I'm on a different timetable. I answer to my father. But this is his mother. Look at Mary's response <laughs> to this mild rebuke, I guess. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. <laughs> Mary, Mary knows the character of her son. <laughs> she knows that he is going to help. Because he didn't say no, did he? He said, no, I'm not going to do it. He just said, well, I, I'm in a different time. Right, yeah. So whatever he says, go ahead and do it. <laughs> I just, I just love that because it's his mom. We boys, we do what our moms want, don't we? Don't we? Don't we? Okay. Better say yes. She knows he's going to do something. He's her son, and he's God. Um, and at the same time, she handles this in a way. You know, she shows her submission in her command to the to the servants. You know, she just says, you know, he's going to tell you to do stuff. You just do it. And I love that. 
And on a side note, she, rec- you know, she kind of references these servants. Um, they're not slaves. The word used there is diakonos. It's where we get the word deacon, servant, uh, from. Um, the doulos word, slave, would be used there if they were slaves. So I, another reason I tend to believe they're, they're probably not household slaves, but maybe friends, family members that are there to serve and help out the celebration. But that's just a side note. So there's the situation. We're, we're there at the scene. But now we see the supply. Verse 6. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Now, here's what I want you to notice about that is I want you to notice the detail. The detail. It's the number of pots. Well, there were six of them. The make of the pots, the material, they were made of stone. They're not made of earthenware, like clay or pottery, uh, because the Jews used stone because the, um, the pottery would become unclean. But the stone didn't have a potential to be unclean because they're used for purification. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But also the capacity. These were large pots. They're capable of holding uh, 20 or 30 gallons apiece. So these aren't the same water pots used by uh, the women at the well. Like we'll see here in chapter 4. It's not the same size. But those would be much, much smaller. So how do we arrive at these specific details? How did, how did the author John acquire that? He had to be an eyewitness. He had to be eyewitness. Another reason why I think he, he is there, he's one of the five, he sees. Yeah, there were six of them. They were made of stone, and they, they were huge. They hold 20, 30. He knows the details. And what were these pots for? They're according to the manner of purification of the Jews. That was ceremonial washing, and that was integral to Judaism. You, you had to have that ceremonial washing. Let's take you to Mark chapter 7 so you can see what we're talking about. Because uh, early on, the Pharisees really hated that Jesus and his followers uh, didn't follow with these, these, these sort of outward uh, ceremonial things. And in Mark chapter 7, uh, you, see that, you see that happening. It says, verse 2, Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? Interesting, right? How, how, do they, how do they do this? They just didn't understand. That's part of Judaism. This is part of what we do. Your guys don't do this. This is an outward expression of purification, and you need to be pure. And so they're questioning Jesus. Why don't, why don't your disciples practice purification? Look what they said. He answered, verse 6, and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. See, Jesus was not happy about the fact that they were condemning him for not washing their hands. Because they did all this outward stuff, but they cared nothing for the inward. They still ripped people off. It just looks shiny and clean, but he says, inwardly, you're really just dead men's bones. They're not interested in inward purification. Here's the contrast that we see, and this is what I want you to get here. 
there's a contrast between the old order of things. This is how these things used to work. And the new order of things. See, Jesus is coming to establish a new order. And the contrast is unmistakable. In John chapter 4, verse 13, this is where he meets the woman at the well. He sort of refers to this sort of in the same uh, kind of symbolic idea with water. Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. Remember, she's pulling water out of the well. You know, you can do that, but you'll be back tomorrow, right? Because you'll be thirsty again. So if you drink that water, you're going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. You can wash your hands all day long and all those copper pitcher things, right, Pharisees, but you're still going to be unclean and you're still going to come back and have to wash them again. But I've come that you have, don't have to do any of that anymore. It's going to happen on the inside and it's going to spring up into a fountain that's going to lead to everlasting life. That is what he's talking about. So what Jesus is going to do in this miracle, he's going to accomplish several things here. And the miracle itself is going to happen pretty quick. He's going to demonstrate his compassion. Jesus is compassionate. He's going to meet a very practical need. And what I find fascinating is that he finds a way to do it in which he doesn't blow his cover, right? It's not his hour yet. He's able to do it in a way that still sort of remains somewhat unseen and somewhat unhidden, uh, hidden. He kind of does it behind the scenes. He's going to rescue the bride and groom from this embarrassing situation and also do it without stealing their spotlight. The spotlight is for the bride and groom, right? If he was to do that miracle and now all these people look at him like, oh, what about, what, what a bummer for the wedding, right? Like, oh, remember that day we were, we were supposed to be about us and it was all about Jesus? Uh, mm. Now I understand, right? It is about Jesus. Don't get me wrong. But Jesus is showing compassion there, Right? This is, this, this is a time for them. I don't want to steal the spotlight from there. He's, he's selflessly meeting the needs of the hour. He's also going to demonstrate the superior new order of things compared to the inferior. The superior wine from the old order of things, the stone water pots used for purification. And thirdly, he's going to leave the new couple with a pretty generous wedding gift, 120 gallons of wine, the best wine they ever tasted. So... That's pretty good, too. So he's going to accomplish all that in one go. Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. So let's look at it. Verse 7. Jesus said to them, hocus pocus. No, he didn't. He just says, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. I think it's part of the problem we have with these. There's not enough fanfare around them, right? We, we want, and then he did, you know, nothing up my sleeve. And, you know, no, no mirrors. We want some kind of, this is God. He just goes, yeah, just fill it up. Fill it up. Incredible. Yes, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Notice that to the brim. That's an important note because it shows us that nothing could have been added to the water. These are completely full. And then he says, verse nine, uh, 8, and he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. That's, that's the miracle. We have verse 7 and verse 8. All the rest of the stuff is all just the background. The, the miracle is, yeah, fill it up, take it to the guy. That's, the, that's incredible. That's, that's all we have. And with all of the detail that we've received at this point, there's no mention of Jesus, you know, touching the pot. He's not praying over them. He just simply says, yeah, take it to the master of the feast. Now, the master of the feast was the one responsible, right, for, the, for the, making sure the guests were well supplied with the food and all that. He's probably the master of the 
the ceremonies, had a great relationship with the, the bridegroom. And he tastes the wine. Verse 9, when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, I, I love this, and did not know where it came from. <laughs> Why did he not know? Because it tasted incredible. He was like, okay, yeah, we can never afford to buy this stuff. Where'd this come from, right? This, did I have a rich family member I didn't know about that just came in and said, kaboom, here you go. Um, this is good stuff. He didn't know where it came from. I doubt he really even knew that they were out of the wine. It was probably just, you know, the, the mother taking care of those things behind the scenes. Again, the last thing you want to do is, right, cause this uproar, right? I mean, I know my, my cousin Saul came to me and said, hey, there was a potential problem, but I fixed it. Okay, glad. He didn't just go, hey, yeah, there's a problem. What do you want to do? You know, <laughs> right? he took care of it. What's well, so the mother of Jesus? I'm just going to take care of it. So the master of the feast probably didn't even really know. Just taste the wine. What on earth? Where did this come from? And I love the note, the servants knew. Well, of course they did, because they knew there was no wine. They were out of wine. He didn't know where it came from. The servants who had drawn the water knew. They were the ones that filled it. They were the ones that drew it out. The master of the feast called the bridegroom, naturally. Called the bridegroom. And look at verse 10. And he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. So he's just talking about the tradition of these weddings. You know, they would, the custom would be to set out the, the good wine first. Everybody can still taste it, right? And like, this is a good quality wine. But after the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, because, you know, they're no longer concerned about quality by that point, right? They're just consuming. <laughs> Now, listen, when it says well drunk, that is the verb metheo, M-E-T-H-Y-O, and it does mean to become drunk, and it's translated that way in every instance in the New Testament. So he is saying, listen, <laughs> when this, you know, happens, normally normally the good, the good stuff and then the other stuff because people are, they're drunk, <laughs> right? They're just drunk and they can't taste the quality, but you have done the opposite thing. But here's what I want you to know. That does not mean that this particular banquet had turned into some kind of drunken party. He's just saying traditionally, right, when people, that's why they do it this way. But it's, that's, the, that's his point. I think it's obvious. You've kept the good wine until now. This has got to be the sweetest, freshest wine he's ever tasted because it didn't come about by the normal fermentation process, right? It requires the grapes. It requires the time. He just said, you fill it up. Fill it up. Done. Here's the point. Jesus creates a far more superior wine than that of the inferior. Belief in Jesus and his righteousness is far superior to the old manner of works-based righteousness. I have nothing to offer. Uh, works, Works are tiring because you never make it. Works you must repeat, and you must do it over and over and over again. I'm going to keep trying to be righteous. I'm going to keep trying to be righteous. I'm going to keep trying, and you will try forever. We needed a new order. We needed a new way, and Jesus came to establish that. That old way is done away with. This is the new way. This is the new way, and it's far, far superior to the old. John's emphasis on the superior quality of the swine is an emphasis to note in the coming miracles. The author notes this all the way through that. When Jesus heals the nobleman's son, we'll see that in chapter four, he doesn't even come to Capernaum to lay hands on him. 
He does it from a distance. The lame man that Jesus heals in chapter 5, we find out he's been lame for 38 years. The blind man that he heals, turns out he's been blind since birth. And when he's called to go heal uh, Lazarus of his sickness, he waits two more days, by which time his friend is dead. It's four days by that point. And it makes it practically impossible because in the Jewish mind, the spirit resided around the dead body for three days. So four days, impossible. So John always records the superior aspect of Jesus' miracles, and he does so here as well. The superior quality. And here, look at the result. This is the significance. We've seen the scene. We've seen the supply. Here's the significance of this event. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This miracle accomplished several things. Manifested his glory. As the word was made manifest in the person of Jesus, his glory is made manifest through the miracle. That's what we see here. He created something from nothing. I mean, there was only water. Grapes, the thyme, all that wasn't there. This is an amazing miracle. It is. But here's what I don't want us to miss. Jesus does this every year. Jesus does this all the time. Right? Is, is he the word that was in the beginning? Is he the light that was the life of men? He's the one that brings all life. So then natural, natural thing, the natural fermentation process and all that, Jesus does that. We don't need to, we don't want to disconnect that. We go, oh, that's, that's a miracle. But that, that's just nature. No, that's God. Because God created that process. Augustine said this, He who made the wine at this wedding does the same thing every year in the vines. As the water which the servants put into the water pots was turned into wine by the Lord, so that which the clouds pour down is turned into wine by the same Lord. Because he created the clouds. He created the grapes. He created the water. I mean, it's incredible. That's the same creator. So you see what I mean when I start about this disconnect? We say, oh, that's, that's, that's a miracle. We have to start at the beginning. No, God created. God created, then this is, not, this is not a leap. That's just natural. His glory is manifest here, but his glory is manifest in all things. Secondly, his disciples believed in him. It led to belief. Jesus' transformation of water into wine points to the kind of you know, transforming ministry he's going to have. Here in this little town of Cana, right? Jesus' first disciples. They, they not only just follow him, but now they believe. So ever since the fall, <laughs> rebellious sinners have rejected the supernatural, believing that Jesus must have been just an ordinary person with nothing supernatural or divine about him. All attempts to explain Jesus as a mere man fail to explain the facts of his life and his death and his resurrection. It's impossible to remove the supernatural elements from Jesus's life. You can't do it. The New Testament uh, writers then uh, do the opposite. They record all of those elements. The truth of the matter is this. This led to belief. They saw a miracle, no doubt. And that's what people want to see today. Show me a miracle And I'll believe, right? Do something magnificent for me. Perform for me, genie, in a bottle, and then I will believe. And you will see all through this, they're going to demand a sign. Yeah, give me a sign. Give me a sign. Show me something. He's like, I'm not going to give you a sign at all. I've done that. And you're still going to miss it. He knows the heart. 
He knows the heart. The heart is rooted in unbelief because if he does the miracle, what's going to change? So the heart is still the problem. The heart is still a problem. You must believe that you have a higher authority over you. We don't want that. Humans don't want it. We want our lives to remain the same. I want, I don't, I want nothing to change. Jesus comes and changes water into wine and says, I have a transforming power. It's a new and superior power over things that you do that cause no change. Jesus wants change. I want change. I don't want to be like this forever. Do you? I, I want change. And that's why we open with that verse, right? First John 3. We're gonna, we're gonna, someday we're going to be as he is. Amen to that? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. We just, we just revel in your glory. God, you are a good God. And you have transforming power over us. Lord, and many times we fail just in every day to believe that, but you do. Lord, you have saving power, and with saving power comes changing power. We are being sanctified. We're being made more and more like you. So, Lord, may we not fall into unbelief. His disciples believed that day that he had that kind of power, and they followed him. But they wouldn't follow him perfectly. They wouldn't have perfect belief. They would struggle, as we do. So, God, we just pray that you'd be merciful to us. You'd be gracious to us as we believe. Help, help our unbelief. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this amazing miracle. We thank you for the example in here. But more importantly, Lord, we just uh, thank you for the miracles of life that we see all around us every day. You are the creator. You've created all things, and you deserve all glory and praise and worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.